Oscar, let's go for it. There we go. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. I think this is episode 16 now. 17? <laughs> oh, 17, my bad. Yeah, I'm forgetting myself. I'm Brentley. I'm Dan. What's up? And today we have with us Mr. Christian Watson. Thank yeah. you for joining us, Christian. Yeah, so... Um, I'm going I'm, to, I guess I'm going to kick it off. Well, and let him introduce himself a little bit. Okay. I was going to talk a bit about <laughs> how I heard about him, but yeah, you know, I guess we'll let Chris, you know, introduce himself before it, man. Uh, I'm, I'm far more interested in what you were going to talk about than introducing myself since I yeah. do it so often, but, 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 but I'll give a few words. So I'm Christian Watson. I'm the host of the Pensa Politics podcast. I'm also the spokesperson for Color Rush United, which is a national media campaign to fight for a race blind society. And I like to describe myself also as a fledgling philosopher because I recognize that I have an entire life ahead of me where I, be, I will be studying philosophy and knowing more and gaining more. So it'd be premature to call myself a sort of an, a fully acknowledged philosopher, but philosophy is at the heart and core of everything that I do. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to be, oh, yeah, so I'm happy to be here. So, yeah. So I, I stumbled upon you last month, actually. So I haven't even heard of you until recently, but I was watching gothics channel actually and i had just recently heard about her and i stumbled upon a round table debate about critical race theory mm. um so i was like wow what is this this looks interesting you know i have i heard of michael morano before so i was like oh you know let me click this yeah. let me skim through it maybe it's interesting i ended up staying up late at night and like sitting there and listening to that entire like three and a half hour debate mm. and it was fascinating um there was some comical moments in it too but by the end of it i was like who is this christian watson guy he is so articulate and intelligent i need to talk to him and that was that was how i heard about you so very nice yeah there's some very nice sentiments my friend i'm, I'm blessed by them um yes well you know <clears throat> out of so every situation has has two or more sides to it i think that a lot of us are distracted by what appears to be most evident which is why I say we cannot trust the senses all the time, right? The senses are very important. I think that observation is very important as a gateway and even a means of getting past the gateway of, get, of understanding knowledge, right? I don't think that we can understand the world without observing things and understanding what happens in reality. But I do think that sometimes people take for granted things that happen, what they can see for how things are. There's always a hidden arcana, as Emmanuel Swedenborg would have said, to every single thing. And in the context of that debate, the, the, the sort of hidden part was that that debate was actually a very good way to bring people to the message of, of, of being anti-critical race theory, being pro-individualist, of being of being critical, correctly critical, not wokely critical yeah, of, of these kind of ideas. Yeah. yeah. And, and and so I'm happy that the debate reached you. I'm happy that it inspired you. Um, you know, it wasn't inspiring for me. Uh, it certainly yeah, wasn't you, inspiring. You seemed, you seemed frustrated toward the end of it. And I just oh. thought it's so fascinating to see these academic <clears throat> ivory tower, you know, white liberal type people arguing with black folks about how they should feel about their identity and how they should interpret it. And it was just really interesting. I noticed, I, I don't remember the guy's name. He had the long hair, but he just yeah, he kept smugly, yeah. smugly laughing at, at any retort or rebuttal. Rather than addressing the point, he would just like, ha, 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 smugly laugh at it. It reminded me of those people on Facebook when you debate with them. And instead of addressing your points, they just laugh emoji every single post that you make. <laughs> and it was sort uh, of like that. But I, I did, I saw that it was frustrating you. And I'm like, wow, that would have frustrated me too, man. I don't know how you kept your cool so much. 
Well, it, it, it frustrated me. I think, I think I can speak for Vanessa. Uh, I don't do this often because Vanessa's an individualist. I'm an individualist and we are very strong in that. But I think I can, I speak for her when I say it also frustrated her very much. Yeah. Um, during the after party, I'm not sure if you saw the after party, we I, were trying to decompress. Yeah, yeah, we had an after party after the debate. We were trying to decompress and we couldn't even decompress there. Wow. We were just so drained and tired and and we, we, we just felt a certain way because- we were we we were we we were uh, subjected to a, a rhetorical torture session by two people, and I'll say it, even though this will this will yeah. make the, the moderator of the debate the, the the moderator of the debate who who really didn't step in and do anything. It'll yeah. make him pretty mad, but I'll say I, I'll say it. Um, we were subjected to a rhetorical torture session by two sophists, two highly trained sophists, whose whose goals, at least in that context, were to defend straw men of an idea, which if you look at the the actual text behind the idea, like all the theorists behind the idea, is blatantly not what they were saying it was. They yeah. were trying to misrepresent what critical race theory was in order to, to I, I... in order to well, because it's not well, well, they could define it. They didn't want to. Yeah, they didn't want to because right. if like you were refusing to, yeah. If you pin critical race theory down, that leaves it open for examination, and that leaves it core premises open for further examination. And if you examine critical race theory's core tenets, you can arrive at some pretty troublesome conclusions, at least troublesome for the people who are trying to use critical race theory as a method of pedagogy, which is what Sam Holy Bro, who is going into academia, and what Aaron Rabinowitz, who is already in academia, has been yeah. there for 13 years, are doing and want to do. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that are going into that sort of matrix of mediocrity and intellectual prudishness, which is seeping through the crevices of those sophistic minds, which have no intellectual integrity whatsoever contained therein. That's just my opinion. Now, I know that that'll make, that'll make the moderator of the debate very mad because he kind of scored me. Michael Moreno, I've heard of him before. I've seen some of his mm -hmm. videos online and I agree with you. I don't think he did a very good job in moderating that debate. So, and he might, he might agree with you there too. So I don't know if it would necessarily make him mad, but I, I, I well, concur there. Yeah. Well, I'll, 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 I'll let that dog rest for now. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of history there, but I'll let the dog yeah. rest for now. Um, the one I'll thing I wanted to ask you about Christian was uh, recently, one of the things that kind of made me really angry uh, as a gay man was that video that the San Francisco men's choir put out yeah. Uh, entitled a message from the gay yeah. community we saw your video recently on it and your your criticisms were much lighter than ours <laughs> I mean, ours i think were much harsher i think you you gave them a, a nice you know treatment and, yeah. and the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. and you know i well i agree with you that that definitely was an attempt at you know tongue-in-cheek yeah humor. it was obviously tongue-in-cheek it's sure. not how it was received at all well, and it really mm -hmm. made like the entire gay community uh by extension just look terrible and it just made me so seething with anger because they claim to be speaking for the entire gay community. Well, it was labeled a message from the gay community. So in a sense, yeah, they are claiming to speak for all of us. Well, you know, the way I assessed that video was actually using, I guess, the, the big biblical axiom of you shall know them by their fruits, right? So sure, it was tongue in cheek. Obviously, they did it because they were trying to create some form of tolerance despite the fact that about, I think, eight of them now have been revealed to be some sort of sex offenders, but tongue-in-cheek or not, you will know them by their fruits, right? And mm. all I really saw from that was a negative result. I just, I saw more backlash. I saw, 
you know, conservatives just flee further into their conservatism, you know, if they're, you know, really extremely on the right. I didn't see it as something that was helping us. I, just, I saw it as something that was making people fear us more. So I view it as, an, as a negative thing, you know, but. Hmm. Um, well, <clears throat> I, I, I think, well, before I give any answers, I'm curious. So what was your, so what was your impression of my criticism of them? Do you, so in what ways was it like? I'm curious because I, I agree. I probably didn't engage with them as much as I should have, but in what ways do you think it might've been like? Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess ours, I guess what I meant was just ours was harsher. Maybe yours wasn't so much lighter. I guess it's more just our group. Yeah. It was certainly more harsher. We were like, all right, this is, you yeah. know, we're not okay with this. This doesn't help us. Yeah. This doesn't represent us. This is doing more harm and more damage to us. Um, right. So I think, I think we, were, we made a more hard line. Like we don't want to be associated with this. Yeah, so. I think you definitely did a good job at explaining, I think, what the initial intent yeah. behind it was for maybe like uh, like a wide audience, whereas I definitely came down as very critical and, and offended, frankly. Right. Um, so that's just kind of where I was coming from. And I, I saw yeah. more into the possibility of um, predators behind the scenes using that mm -hmm. chorus as a sort of uh vehicle through which they could uh, propagate their their um divisive sort of ideology it seems very machiavellian to me and so i was mm. curious as to you know who actually funded the and and wrote the the lyrics and and sort of where more it came from but i couldn't really get past uh you know that the guys who wrote it is actually his name is out there but um whoever funded it it was sort of listed as like an independent arts organization so i'm just very i was very critical interesting 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 um so yeah so a few things about that video um first i think that a lot of the criticism from the right that i've seen and i'm also on the right you guys probably know that already but i just when i when i speak of the right and in, in, in like secondary senses people think well you're not on the right are you I'm, well yeah i, I am I'm not a tribalist but i'm on the right um i think a lot of the criticism from the right whether it's the gay a lot of capital republicans and their criticism of that video a lot of it seems to come from a sense uh, of affirming the premise of what the san francisco gay men's course was suggesting uh, but not liking where the, where the conclusion was. So the premise of what the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus was suggesting was that there is a gay community at all. And, and, and when, a, when, when, you, when you affirm that, I think that that's a dangerous thing because you kind of buy in to an ideology which seeks to eradicate the uniqueness of every individual, gay, straight, pansexual, bisexual, whatever. So I don't believe in a gay community. I've never believed in a gay community. I'm not a part of a gay community. I never want to be a part of a gay community, especially not considering how, considering the modern state of, 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 of most, of a lot of gay men that I've met. Not trying, not trying to be offensive or anything, but oh, yeah. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be a part, I don't want to be a part of the grinder I, culture. I don't want, I'm, I'm going to be real with you guys. I don't want, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah. You know, no, I, I don't want to be a part of the, never the fit in. so i never yeah. i fit into that culture myself yeah so. so 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 i you know i've always been radically individualistic and in, and in, in my in my stance now having said that the moment someone claims to speak for you if you have that edict in your heart that you speak for yourself you can reject their entire message outright okay. that's not what a lot of folks did though and even though i agree with the criticism like look what obviously it was a bad joke it was tongue in cheek, but I do think there is truth to it. I do think a lot of folks in that video, I can deduce 
that many of them probably do want to see certain agendas pushed to make people more tolerant. I could deduce that. Sure. sure. I, I, you know, I could deduce that. I mean, I think that a lot of, um, a lot of uh, 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 gay leftists want that, um, which is why I think that the better focus, and I think I put this in the direction I went in the video, the better focus is probably on queer theory. Because queer theory is an actual academic movement, which is an activist movement, which is in ad educational institutions, which, which are in, things in like areas, yeah. which are in areas, um, you know, that can impact learning and the learning experience and how certain people develop their thoughts. That's what is actually targeting the children, even though most children who interact with queer theory are, are like, you know. 20, 21 year olds, not children anymore, but they yeah. are kids of a, of, a, of a parent, right? They're still, they're still a young adult. So I, I think that's probably the bigger menace, but yeah, I, I wasn't in favor of the video. I think that, uh, I think that it was done in bad taste. Um, there were quite a few attractive men in that video. I will say that much. Uh, <laughs> uh, there were quite a few, uh, they had, they, they, they're a very talented people in that video. I just wish they used their talents and their charms for benevolent purposes, not benevolent purposes, and not simply have benevolent intent, but manifest them through dark means. You see, you see the medium by which you dispense with your work. You know, Emerson said, "I'll know you by your work." The medium by which you dispense with your work is very powerful. If the medium by which you dispense with your work involves vitriol, anger, hatred, smearing, attacking, you know, dunking. You know, I'm looking at Candace Owens, but people like that. <laughs> then, then, uh, I, then, then you're trying to manifest something that may be good in intention through a means that is evil, you know? So I just, I, I, I think the medium is very important and the medium in that video was obviously not the wise one. When you tell anyone you're going to come for their kids, they get defensive. And if you want to outrage people, make them mad, make them fearful, that's what you do. But if you want to bring folks together or you want to have a conversation with folks, you don't make them mad, fearful, or angry. You reach out to them. We reach out to them in humility, bare bone humility, and you proceed forth from that proposition. And that's obviously not what the San Francisco Gay Men's Course wanted to do. They have not a single ounce yeah. of epistemic humility. In that's their that's kind of what angered not me a single so much. Ounce. That's, that's kind of what angered me so much about it, though. It's, it's not even just the video itself existing. It's the fact that when people pointed these things out to them and said, hey, this is doing more damage, this isn't helping, you know, they double down instead of saying, hey, maybe this was in poor taste. Uh, we apologize. We, we realize that it shouldn't surprise us that people might misinterpret how, how we're saying this. You know, when you sing, we're coming for the children, you shouldn't be shocked that people might actually believe you and think you're coming for the children, right? So instead of apologizing and saying, hey, we're sorry, this was in poor taste. We apologize if this hurt, brought any hurt upon LGBT people. We did not intend that, right? No, they doubled down on it. They made it seem like it was just a right-wing campaign of a bunch of homophobes who were attacking it, totally dismissing that there were people like us who were like, no, like, what are you doing? Stop this. And that's kind of what angered me so much, you know, about it. Yeah, well, I, 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 I yeah, oh, sorry. Oh, I, I made my, my last YouTube video is, uh, so I, we have the Dangerous Rhetoric channel and then I have the It's Brentley channel, which has kind of been like a longer uh, thing that's just my, my solo gig, but it's, uh, my last video on there was basically just criticizing the, their thing. And a couple of the comments that I got back were like people thanking me for, you know, sort of speaking out as, as a gay man to be like, this doesn't represent me. This doesn't represent the entire community. This was done in poor taste. So it was interesting to see that feedback from straight people yeah. who appreciated the, the critique 
And also I, I got some feedback from other gay people who necessarily, you know, like they can't necessarily, they don't have a channel or they can't come out and say it for, you know, how they feel for whatever reason. And they, they were also appreciative. So I thought that was kind of interesting that like that, 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 that happened. Mm-hmm. So I, it felt good. I felt good about that. So. That's great. You know, when you raise your voice for a good, for a good purpose or even for a bad purpose, um, you will, you will get some kind of response. And in that case, you get a pretty beneficial response. You know, I, you know, as for me, I, I, I just, uh, my, my very individualistic approach prevents me from doing some of the things that may immediately appeal to people, you know, a, uh, a, a most gay people, conservative or liberal do view themselves as adjacent proximal to the idea of a gay community, even if they're not necessarily identifying it as a part of it. And, and, and for me though, that word is anathema to everything I believe. Now this is a radical perspective. This is an unpopular perspective, which is why I really can't, I, I, I really can't, I can't, that, that, that kind of, you know, that person who has that feeling that, that, that there's a sort of gay community and I, I can't reach them. Yeah. I can't reach them like that. I can reach them in other ways, I think, but not like that. And, and, and this is the kind of radical will working in the mind that I want to get people to do more of. I, 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 I want a lot of people to begin unthinking a lot of the things they have thought. Now, the woke does this. They say this is decolonializing your mind, <laughs> you know, trying to get rid of all of the concepts that normativity has imposed upon you. Well, I'm Christian Watson is saying, no, 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 Get rid of all the concepts that go against the normal functions that necessitate you being a harmonious human being, you adhering to what I believe is the natural law, you adhering to moral virtue, get rid of everything that goes against that. And in many cases, normativity how things are, how things are set out in the natural world are concerned with all those things, but they have been assaulted by these sort of paganistic phrases, the gay community, the black community, women's rights, gay rights. I don't believe in this group collectivist nonsense. They're pagan phrases that are- It separates everyone. And not only that, but they're pagan phrases. And when I say pagan, I don't mean in terms of like- they. Yeah, I was confused by that. I have have nothing against, I have nothing against actual pagans. You're going to piss the Wiccans off, man. uh, No, no. I I love the Wiccans. They're actually, a lot of them are brilliant and very spiritually aware people. I love them. Um, (laughs) What I mean by pagans is I mean it is, it is, it is a concept that is foreign to our proper functioning. Mm. It is because I think the first iteration of the word pagan simply meant outsider. And that is a outsider concept to our proper functioning as human beings. It's an assault on our dignity to, 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 to put me in a community that I never agreed to be put in. Exactly. It's yeah. why, why I believe that the social contract itself is a very bad idea, but that's a different story. So You, you sound you know, like Jordan Peterson. Oh, well. Uh, I don't watch Jordan Peterson very Love much. Him, uh, I, uh, lots, that's <laughs> very bad. nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Christian Watson. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, mean, I mean, in the sense that that's really, I think, the core tenant of his message is to go back to the individual. It doesn't mean that these, these distinctions don't exist you know, about us, he doesn't skin very color, different way, or sexuality, et cetera. But ultimately what it comes back down to is to taking responsibility for yourself, right? And finding out who you are separate from those groups. Well, yeah, Jordan, Jordan does it in a very different way though. He does it through, by appealing to, 
Jungian archetypes and storytelling and that kind yeah. of stuff. But I'm not I'm not really into that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I I don't mind Jung. I think that Jung has some some good parts of him, but I think that a lot of Jung's focuses were a little bit too abstractionist for yeah, the archetypes. For, me, for me to really yeah yeah the collective unconsciousness. This idea that we have this sort of singular mind of shared experience and all these ideas just go through. That's why we have common. I I, I, I I'm just not really. I think there's something to this idea that we do use a collective set of similar symbols and myths. And this has been observed, not just by Jung, but, you know, Mercy Eliad and, and Joseph Campbell and, and lots of other scholars, you know, throughout, uh, throughout well, time. Well, Jung so seems to think that, that it's, too, you know? he seems to think that it's integral to the human experience, though. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure that's the case, personally. I think that the human experience is, is uh, has a few constants, most certainly. Um, Do but, you think symbol making uh, is one of them in storytelling? Um, I I think I think historically a lot of cultures have had that, but I, I I don't think historically just because a lot of cultures have had that as a means of dispensing their values that everyone in those cultures were concerned with that particular practice. You know, I I I think that there are a lot of people who are concerned about other things who are, you know, just as human as anyone else, and who may be completely unaware that there is this collective unconsciousness that of, share, of shared thought throughout history. They may be completely unaware of that. You know, the farmer in Nebraska who's concerned about making sure his family can eat and his crops are, are fertile, he's not worried about a collective unconsciousness. He's worried about, he's worried about a bunch of other things that have brought, have been brought into his life both externally and internally by both the profession he's chosen and the things associated with the profession. So I just think that it's always better to not look so much at these great granular abstract claims and look more at what people actually deal with. Now, when I talk about natural law theory, people think that's abstract. I disagree because I can observe the tenets of natural law theory. I can observe my access to my rights through my reason. I can observe that easily. It's not necessarily very abstract. Now, you may have to think about it a little bit because we oftentimes we don't think about ourselves as being connected by this sort of natural, these natural functions, which guarantee that we have value and rights. We typically don't think about that. And, and, and admittedly, my own argument would say that most folks, that farmer in Nebraska, probably isn't worried about the natural law theory or whatever, or who ordained obligations, but he probably, <laughs> but, he, but, he, but he probably is worried about if his property is being respected. He probably is worried about if he has the right to self-defense and self-ownership. He yeah. was worried about all of those things, and all of those things are contained and justified by the natural law. So I think that the theories that I cling on to or I, I, I try to explain are much more endemic to reality, much more practical and rooted in, 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 in what I can see, what I can touch, what I can feel, what I can uh, process through those immediate things. Jung is valuable, but it's a little bit too up there for me. Uh, Not that I can't understand. I understand. Fine. I guess I my, my only criticism of that is that it sounds a bit materialist reductionist. And would you not say that there no. perhaps are phenomenon that are unexplainable, right? By Oh, sure. No, I'm a Christian. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Uh, and, and, I, and I do believe that there's an arcana to our knowledge, right? There's what we so can you see, think feel, like touch. A spiritual realm underlying the physical. It's not just. Yes, but it's not like a realm. It's not like a realm. It's not like the realm of the forms, right? Where Plato, the idea that there's the highest form of truth and there's the perfect idea of beauty and justice. Yeah, you I don't think that, that, that in your, uh, in your Cornell West, West video. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that doesn't exist in my opinion. I think okay. that, I think I can observe all of those things 
here on earth and anything else is just an imagination. Um, I think that the spiritual realm is completely and utterly transcendent and detached from this realm. Okay. If it wasn't, then I'm not entirely sure how spiritual it would be. I always say that, you know, a lot of the things we do in life are spiritual because sometimes they escape the immediate um, measurement by our senses. So in a sense, values that many people have, you know, family, work, all those things don't manifest until those people manifest them for themselves. So in a sense, it's a spiritual value. But I would like to think that the spiritual realm, the actual place of being that I, I believe we go once we die, is much higher than anything that a human mind has conceptualized or can conceptualize here on this earth. So, but if you have the sort of Jungian idea or the particularly the platonic idea, the platonic idea particularly simply wants to make the spiritual realm a better reflection of this realm. And in my opinion, that's a very low way of thinking of spirituality in my personal opinion. Hmm. Um, so that's just, that's how I view things. It is influenced by my Christian, um, my, my, my Christian beliefs, but, you know, Peterson's a valuable guy. I have nothing against him, but, you know, I'm not, not set out to be the next Peterson or anything. Oh, no, I mean, I just meant in, in the <laughs> sense of, of your individualism is what I meant by that is because I think you guys yeah. are in line in that sense, even if, say, yeah, of course. the foundation is more union and yours isn't, I think that's kind of where you guys seem to meet is that hey we should come back to the individual before you know group <laughs> identity you know clean your room is very important it is yeah <laughs> i think it's great <laughs> advice <laughs> you know now i haven't followed advice myself yeah, i haven't always either spell, so. but, <laughs> but that's pretty good advice you know I I, it's I, poetic I, I it's it sums up a lot of really important values into a single sentence you know put your house yeah. in order set your own yeah. shit together before you go out and try to criticize or, or, or try to determine how the rest of the world should function you know yeah, and that's that's right. the problem today with the woke ideology with the sjws with uh, a lot of these kids who are well-meaning you know it's it's natural for young people to want to change the world but you're supposed right. to grow out of that and you're supposed to realize that really you can only change yourself first right and then when you do that you can then project something outward into the world that could make an impact of some sort but right. to put the cart before the horse and to assume like you know how you can fix society's problems is to me like the epitome of hubris right you you can't even mm. you can't even like um you know, you can't even like I don't know take care of your of your pet. You know, some of these people like can can hardly freaking uh, mow their lawn, and they're out there on the streets mm -hmm. protesting, saying like this is how society society should run. This is how people should behave if they want to be good people. Um, I just think they got it backwards. You know, I I'm very much with. I think it was Tolstoy who said something along the lines of mm -hmm. you know everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves. And mm -hmm. you know, I think people just they they flip it. But like I said, the youth, it is natural. I think I, I was like that too. I was definitely more woke or SJW-ish when I was younger and in college. And I think when you start to see the suffering in the world and when you start to see that there are issues and that there are horrible things that happened and you're someone who is of conscience, naturally you want to do something about it. You know, you, you want to fix the problems. You want to try to help in some way but you know as as the saying goes too, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions right so mm -hmm. you could want to help and be well-meaning about it but not totally understand the complicated issues that that you're railing against so mm -hmm. and i think mm -hmm. you definitely touched upon the uh, the the fact that the individual 
we are so distinct. And I think it's something that really gets lost in the conversation. I don't think people realize how different psychologically and internally we really are mm -hmm. from one another and how much diversity actually mm -hmm. exists within the human sort of psychological realm. It's one of the things I've noticed being more active on Twitter, for example, some people don't seem to have the ability for critical thought or independent thought. Yeah, so Michael Malice was saying. Recently. They kind of, yeah, they kind of glom on to these external ideologies and assimilate them as if they are their own. And, and when they become, when they perceive them as under attack, they react as if they themselves are being, you know, attacked. And, and it makes it so that they can't even sort of uh, playfully engage in discussion of ideas uh, in a way that allows, you know, new information or, or possibly self-reflection mm -hmm. or admitting that one may have been wrong or a new information to come into the picture. Yeah. Where you can sort of try ideas on without accepting them. You know, it's like mm -hmm. when you attack the idea, it's almost like to them, you're attacking them. They identify so strongly with the ideology and the idea. It's like, they, it's like a personal attack almost. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it breaks down civil discourse. It makes it impossible for people to have conversations. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> the other thing I want to ask you, Christian, is um, how much reading have you done about psychopathy? <laughs> is that something that yeah. you've like, are you familiar with like Robert um, Hare or, because uh, no, this no, is one no, of the things no. that I really find fascinating yeah. talking about diversity within the species. Yeah. So Brent and I, we're, we're, we're pretty convinced that it's a subject that more people really should understand. And that if more people understood it, I think it would explain a lot more in history. But just the concept that there are certain individuals out there who simply do not have a conscience. And more than that, there are certain individuals out there who don't have a conscience who could mimic certain emotions that they don't actually feel. And, yeah, you know, not just, well, there's in the field, there's a lot of argument, like what word should be used. And those words typically are used interchangeably sometimes in the field, psychopathy, sociopathy. Mm -hmm. I kind of distinguish them in this way to me, you know, look at the, look at a conscience as something that can be turned on or off. Right. And most of us have it, but it can be turned on or off. Right. So to me, a sociopath is someone who's kind of has a selective empathy that could be indoctrinated into them. So they could care about their neighbors or their, or their child or their mother, obviously, but they see a, a black person getting lynched and not a care in the world. To me, that, that's a form of like selective empathy. It's not that they have no conscience at all. It's just they're capable of turning it off in certain instances and turning it on in others. The difference there is a psychopath simply does not have that mechanism. It's not a matter of turning mm. it on and off. It's just, it's not there. And I think that's a pretty important distinction to make. And I think if more people understood that, perhaps we would realize that, well, there are psychopaths in all races. <laughs> there are psychopaths in any group. So the problem really isn't racism or, or white supremacy or this. It's, it's the fact that any group can be infiltrated and, and turned on its head and, and made pathological by these people. Um, but yeah, we, we really recommend looking into that subject more because we feel like it's not talked mm. about enough. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I haven't. I, um, I, so I, I'm going to be in a, in a conversation with Aiden Paladin. I'm, I, I, I'm butchering her name, but I'm not sure if you guys know who she is. Uh, not familiar. Um, uh, Aiden Paladin. I'm not sure. What, uh, anyway, she is this very um, eminent, um, long form SAS YouTuber who has a degree in like several, I think a degree or so in psychology. She's a very intelligent lady. Um, I'm going to be in that conversation on Tuesday. So I, 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 I 
guess I will learn more about it then. Um, but no, I haven't really searched up or researched uh, psychopathy, sociopathy. I have a very, you know, I have a very roundabout understanding of what it is, but I would feel inadequate to, to talk about it because I really wouldn't know what I'd be talking about. Um, so, I, I, I mean, the points you make on first spec seem reasonable. Again, I don't have the technical experience or even the proximal experience to, to make a, a reasoned claim about any of them, other than to say that it's very important. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I, I can conceive of a, a human being who is perfectly normally functioning, who, whose heart can falter. I think the heart is one of the most, most elusive things and I think that one of the faults of science, and this is where I kind of veer away from the extreme empiricism, is that it tries to capture the contents of the heart by measuring them through certain biological processes. Mm-hmm. And now, when typically when we look at biological processes, we're, we're, we're examining the human body as a science and science has a particular conclusion. Science is typically used to broaden knowledge and or to test more things and to, to reach some broader grand conclusion. Um, you know, in medical science, science is used to understand how certain diseases, pathogens, how certain parts of the human body, depending on which part of the science looking at, you know, act in, in certain environments or against certain things, um, you know, uh, it, so, it's an attempt to understand these things, but I think that something like the heart cannot be understood totally, totally empirically. And, and I, I, I think that this is why, and I know this much about psychology, that emotions themselves are a very, um, a very slippery thing for many uh, people studying psychology to deal with. They're a very, uh, very mysterious thing. And there's a reason for that. I mentioned before, there's a sort of arcana to our knowledge. All arcana means is a hidden part of our knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think the heart's one of those things. I mean, the heart defies some of the foundational principles of science all the time. You know, science is predicated upon empiricism and, and logic. And, 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 and anyone knows. You have to measure. The heart, you have to be able to measure something. Well, uh, control uh, in an experiment, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there are some who would reduce human emotions to the experimental experimental term of, you know, just a bunch of processes running up in your head, running up in your body, making making some connections and all that happens. You know, serotonin, dopamine, all that kind of all that good stuff. Um, you know, um, but as, as I was mentioning, um, there are, there are um, scientists predicated upon observation and, and logic and the heart itself, however, compels people to do very illogical things all the time. And this is just a, a, a basic truth, but a integral truth to the practical lives of many people that I don't think can be entirely answered by any one scientific observational mechanism. This is the thing I said about certain parts of the human experience being spiritual, certain parts of the human experience being beyond our ability to capture it. There's certainly a mystery. There's certainly... There's a lot about us that is a conundrum. And, you know, for thousands of years we've been studying ourselves, there's the soul, there's consciousness, there are these things about us that we can't quite understand, you know? Yeah, maybe we're approaching it from the wrong lens, though. Perhaps, perhaps. 
I, I, I think that could be a, a very big thing. The, the ancient Greeks, they rationalize all the time. That's all they did. They, <laughs> the, their science was basically just rationalizations. Well, that's not all they did, but they rationalize all the time. Um, you know, uh, they, 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 they rationalize. They rationalize so much that they didn't even want to, they didn't, as you guys probably know, they didn't do the kind of science we do today. They didn't do this sort of observational experimental science. They just rationalized about scientific concepts. Yep. They, they did observations, just rationalized. They kept, kept it all up in the clouds. That's why the forms was such a popular idea in Plato's uh, Plato's language. It was just a rationalization. And of course, when Rome came in and, and, and knocked Athens down and, and overtook the entire area, the rationalizations were kind of proved to be wrong, or so people thought. Um, but you know, there's a there's a political philosopher called Isabel Patterson who argues that those rationalizations of beauty, of truth that came out of the ancient Greeks actually helped formulate one of the basic principles that we took from them and that is their architecture the thinker all these statues that we see from ancient greece that's probably one of the most readily identifiable things that any person who has even a basic knowledge of history could identify with ancient greeks the statues and the art and the architecture they took it to a different level and that is what a lot of the west has imported from ancient greece not the broad rationalizations. We import ancient Greek, like Athenian science, wouldn't be doing, wouldn't have relativity, wouldn't have any of this kind of stuff laid out for. We would be in the clouds still. We didn't import, we didn't, but we did import other things, and the architecture was one of them. So, you know, I, 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 I think that. Anyway, back to what I was talking about—the measurement thing. I think that um, there are just certain things that have been approached historically by methods that may not have been entirely wise to use. This doesn't mean we shouldn't engage with these things, but it means that we should approach them with caution. You know, Agreed. push them with much caution. Now, Quite again. drawing conclusions. Yeah, well, and now look. Too readily the, drawing conclusions. Yeah, and, and now the psychology thing, look, maybe once I've read a little bit more um, about the psychopathy or whatever, I I, I will, I'll, I'll happily have another comment. I just don't feel yeah, adequate to answer. We can recommend Definitely, we can recommend some books. Yeah, I, I don't feel adequate to answer that. My apologies. So, so I, okay. I wanted to move on a bit. And actually, I wanted to ask you, usually I do this in the beginning when I'm talking to someone, but I was like, let's just jump into the good stuff. But I wanted to ask you a bit more about like you, you know, where are you from? You know, where were you born? Where were you oh, raised? Wow. wow. Okay. Well, I was born in Pennsylvania. Okay. I was raised yeah, there right. for a... Yeah, so oh, wow. That's cool. nice. I was raised there for a good portion of my life. Uh, I moved to Georgia. Uh, I was at uh, Harrisburg, actually the capital. Uh, I was I was born I was born there. I moved to down to Georgia about eleven years ago. Um, I've been in Georgia for eleven years. Um, I'm leaving very soon, uh, probably by the going? end of the year or early next year. Uh, Washington D.C. I'm thinking. Washington D.C. I Are mean, against politics. <laughs> well, I am. I am into politics. So yeah, I won't put I mean, a Are you going to like there. run for office? No, I'm, 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 I, like me, I like media too much. I like, I like being a political commentator too much. Gotcha. You know? I like going on places like, you know, I've, had, I've been blessed to go on places like I've been on BBC and Newsmax yeah, and all that good stuff. I, I've, I've been blessed. So, you know, I, uh, that's the career I want to I pursue, you know, this sort of public intellectual venture. And, and, and I think DC is a very good base of operations for me to launch that ambition. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's that goal there. Um, good luck, man, going to the heart of the beast. Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to uh, see. Uh, well, it's it's all right. I don't I don't believe in luck. I, I believe I I I I believe in 
preparation and I believe in good answer and dedication. Yeah. I believe in preparation, and dedication. And that's, it's kind of why, you know, I've been able to do pull this operation off. You know, I, I'm only 21, 21 years old. This nice. kind of operation. Wow. Yeah. You didn't know. Oh, wow. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I couldn't yeah. tell your age. I was like, I don't even know how this guy is. Uh, <laughs> well, most folks, most 30. folks. I feel what, so you're what? I'm 30. You're thir- wow. You don't look 30. My God. 38. <laughs> no. Yeah. Wow. No, you two look like you're in your 20s. Thank wow. You. <laughs> if you were wow. a little closer, you'd see all the gray hairs here. There's a lot wow. Of- well, no. I, no, no. I'm, I'm just 21. And, you know, this kind of operation is a very difficult to pull off wow well dude let me just say that for for your age you're killing incredibly smart incredibly articulate incredibly you're very nice you know i'm you're very nice i'm actually really (laughs) shocked that you're only 21 i'm like this guy sounds like he has like lots of life (laughs) i wish i had your sense of direction when i was your yeah i was not i was not Mm. that um i did not have my path that figured out at 21 that's for sure i mean I'm an artist and a poet too. So I'm like in a different, different sort of round. Yeah. Well, you know, po- poetry kind of explores, you know, I mentioned, you know, sometimes we're probably exploring things through the wrong lens. Poetry explores that sort of underbelly of human existence. When I say underbelly, I mean the part that we don't see all the time. Yeah. There are certain things that poetry accesses that I, I don't think other fields have accessed yeah. or access it as much. You know, when Whitman says in Song of Myself, I contain multitudes. Yes. I you love know, a, scienti- a scientist can't can't really explain all that. Well, look, you have all these emotions and you have all these biology. Okay, good, good. That doesn't mean anything with what Whitman was saying. Yeah. Whitman was talking about a spiritual maxim there. He wasn't talking about all the processes in our head, all the chemicals it, in our brain. He was talking about something deeper. It accesses something else that I that I think yes. is correct. Is, uh, yes. It's a, it's a yes. different way of looking and thinking, but... I don't know. I can't can't explain it when I even write poems where they come from. So it goes back to that mystery we were talking about, about, you know, the human heart. And yes, yes. You need to sort of cry out into the mystery and the darkness and to to make sense of it and to to leave an imprint of ourselves and to say, hey, I was here. I lived. I felt, you know, I cried. I laughed. I I did these things. I saw these things. I I bared witness. And, you know, I was part. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, this is why the Transcendentalist School of Philosophy in general, well, I consider them a school of philosophy. Most philosophers would sneer at me and say, Christian, they were a literary movement. No, they were philosophers by and large. They were a different kind of philosopher, but they were philosophers by and large. I consider them to be one of the most um, valuable assets that any student of philosophy or history or both has at their disposal. The writings of Walter Emerson, him saying he was to be a man must be a nonconformist and not approaching conformity through a sort of lens that might be intuitive, but approaching conformity from a lens that concerns the soul, constitution of the soul and how we um, live out our lives, you know, how we, how we, as Emerson says, maintain the fullness of our energy and we don't split ourselves and divide our power so that we are becoming weaker. You know, there are just certain things that these sort of poetic thinkers consider that are falling on deaf ears upon uh, uh like excuse me that are falling upon deaf ears with a lot of people i really um, wish we could get the social justice warriors to freaking read emerson <laughs> oh no. well, uh, well individualists but yeah yeah they would, they would I, say I, hey you know he's white and colonial and we have to decolonize our minds so we can't and guess what anymore yeah 
there are leftists who like Emerson. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, and I'm not, I'm not calling Nietzsche a leftist, but Nietzsche liked Emerson. I'm not, I'm not calling he, Nietzsche a leftist, even though he, yeah. he heavily influenced postmodernism, in my opinion. He heavily, I mean, Michel Foucault was, a, was obviously a student, a student, a, a, obviously a distant student, but a student nonetheless of Nietzsche. So he heavily influenced deconstructionism, all that kind of stuff Nietzsche did with his rejection of, of, of morality, his sort of transcendent, the transvaluation of values, you know, the metamorphosis of spirit, you know, the, 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 the camel, the lion, the child, all that kind of stuff. Nietzsche was very much about reworking the social order, the uh, moral order, the epistemic order of modernity. That was all I was Nietzsche's entire project in my opinion from how from from, from what i can understand I, I, I can hardly understand the guy but from what i from what i could gather that was that was his entire project uh, and uh you know em emerson had, was a big influence on nietzsche because emerson didn't believe what we would call normative ethics you know that, that, that there are rights and wrong wrongs there are particular rules emerson just described certain phenomenon he didn't lay down okay this is right this is wrong although he kind of did in a sense but he didn't do it in a sense that most people would do he didn't put so you know no exactly exactly even though he kind of seemed to i mean here's the thing about emerson parts of his work seem to confer certain value judgments Whereas other parts of his work don't. And, and so, for example, in an essay that no one reads called Spiritual Loss by Emerson, he says that education itself, and I'm paraphrasing heavily, has become this institutional me mediocrity. And he was speaking back in the 1800s. I would, he would probably hate to see it today. Education itself has become this sort of institution of mediocrity. And... Only a few, now these words are more in tune with what he was saying, only a few plain instincts, no, only a few instincts, a few good instincts and a few plain rules are necessary for man's everyday life. Emerson didn't believe that you needed these broad overarching moral judgments or, the, or to have knowledge of Latin or, or to have knowledge of the classics of ancient Greece to have a good life. He believed you need to have good instincts and a few plain rules. Now he never really explained what the basis or justification for those rules are, which is why he's not really a normative ethicist, but but that goes he back to very much individualism because I guess in his sense, yes, of, or you as an individual are supposed to figure that out. Yes, so he and and and, and 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 that's kind of Aristotelian in a sense because Aristotle is all not well. Okay, so Aristotle is not in, for the individual at all. In fact, Aristotle hates the individual, in my opinion. I mean, he clearly says that the polis, the community, is necessary for you to be virtuous. I mean. It's kind of offensive that I need someone else to be virtuous. That makes no sense in my opinion. But 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 Aristotle also rejects the idea of having these strict overarching rules. He wants you to just have general principles, but you know, virtue ethics is all about what is good for what you're trying to do. What is courage in your life? What is justice in your life? How can you obtain that in your particular circumstances? And so I think that maybe Emerson was on that line. Maybe, but I can tell you for sure he was not, he wouldn't. You know, he was not a he was not endorsing the sort of natural author that I'm endorsing, even though he believed that nature was a very powerful force. And you know, a lot of those uh, people who I think predated um, Emerson, like Woodsworth, they all talked about nature. All these people talked about nature. The transcendentalist. Was a very, yeah, that, yes, that was yeah. a big a big thing. With them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the transcendentalist, but um, I. I, I, I could have swore now you tell me from I think I don't think what was what, 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 what was, I think was he was a romantic right yeah he was a romantic, romantic. Poet. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Were, so and they were paid the attention those I think so the so romantics think the romantics who focused on nature and idealized nature yeah so the romantics did it heavily but also the transcendentalists did it as well Emerson actually wrote a wrote a book an essay called nature in which he 
it's basically analogous to many romantic sentiments about nature as well. And, you know, Henry David Thoreau with Walden, I mean, kind of living out in the forest, you know, and saying whatever your genius is, what you pursue, you do not pursue, you know, what people want you to pursue. You don't pursue charity for the sake of do good, being a do-gooder, forget do-gooding. This is all Thoreau stuff. He's like, go back to nature, connect with nature, simplify your life. And there are parts of the transcendentalist sentiment that I 100% endorse. There are parts I don't, but that's with any philosopher. But I think that, I think that uh, the current the state of current social discourse in this country would be much better if more people adopted the transcendentalist view of the world as opposed to the deconstructionist, postmodernist, woke view of the world. I wonder if, that view even, of the world, if they're even teaching that stuff anymore because I, you know, no, I read Snapperson no. in college and I was taught it, but I graduated in, in 2014. So I literally just missed that transition, which I would say was really kicked off more around 2015. I guess the Brett Weinstein incident would be a good sort of marker point of when the woke stuff kind of spilled more out into the campuses, but I literally had just missed it. I was right before yeah. that really started to take over more. But we learned Emerson, Emerson, we were reading Whitman, we were reading Shakespeare, and now they want to cancel all these authors. So, Yeah, I think that a lot of colleges, and this is just, I not know, there's possibly some program in the United States, maybe at one of the New England colleges where the transcendentalist movement was, maybe they have some, uh, you know, transcendentalist stuff. Yeah. But from my understanding, particularly in philosophy curricula, the transcendentalists are largely absent. Wow. They're largely absent. They're, they're largely absent. I mean, at least in my school, we didn't really study them. Where did they're you largely study? absent. Um, so I study at Mercy University and I'm, I'm, I'm actually finishing my last semester there. Um, Congrats. Yeah. It, 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 well, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Um, it's an accomplishment, uh, man. It, it is an accomplishment. Well, it's, it, it, it is, it is. And, and, and there, there's I, something to be said about committing yourself to something, following through with it, completely yes. finishing it, you know? Yes. I, I, like I the agree. state of the universities right now, you know? Yeah. Well, I will tell you this much. If, if I, if I could go back in time three years ago, and, and talk to, to, to 18 year old Christian um, four years ago, actually. Yeah. Um, I would tell him a lot of things. <laughs> I would tell him I cracked in the face. I'll probably punch him. <laughs> <My Bitcoin. laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, I should have got, I should have gotten that train. I should have gotten that train, but yeah, I would have probably hit him. Punch. I would have punched him a few times and like told him to knock some sense into himself, you know, stop feeling so bad for himself, Same. things like that. Same. But, <laughs> but I would have, I would have also said, don't go to college. I would have also said, don't go to college. Yeah. I may have also advised myself that I, I don't regret it. You know, I, I think ultimately right. I, I made, you know, I made a lot of great connections, some of whom I'm still in touch with. And mm -hmm. ultimately I do think that is what college is about more than anything is it's the mm -hmm. networking. It's the people you meet mm -hmm. more than sitting in the classroom and, and talking. Right. But I, I do agree. You know, I think I could have easily just took that that 30 grand and built my library up more and just read, you know, and just studied on my own. And I think there is a misconception that that you need to go to a university and get this degree to be an educated person when, you know, in the modern age we live in now with all this information at our fingertips, anyone can educate themselves up to the point of, of, an, of a college graduate academic. That's so right. It, it's not totally necessary anymore. And and then there's this, this whole drive of just pushing everyone blanket wise into that direction when there are many people who just aren't cut out to be academics or, or, they're, or they're, they probably shouldn't go to college. Maybe they would have been better if, you know, they were interested in cars and someone recognized that 
in college and was like, wow, I mean, in high school, I was like, wow, you're really good at that. You know, maybe you should consider a career in this thing that you're passionate about. And you're good at. Instead, it's put in their heads that, oh, I need to, I need to get this college degree. And they could have taken a different route and perhaps, you know, put themselves in a better position. And then they get out with all this debt. So, and then now with the, with the woke stuff kind of taking over the universities, it's really hard yeah. for me to recommend, you know, that students go. I, I was a substitute teacher for a few years and mm. you know, I had many students come up to me with their doubts about going and I could not give them an affirmative answer that they should. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I agree with you in that sense. Well, it's risk. Yeah, it is a risk. Risk is the reason. Risk is the reason why people are not are are, are not are not opting not to go to college. Yeah. We live in one of the most pampered civilizations, <laughs> civilizational periods rather in the yeah. history of human existence. So the many people on the people. the people on uh, beyond being ungrateful. There are people, plenty of people who are pampered and grateful that they're pampered. Actually, sure. pretty plenty grateful that they're pampered. That's the problem. Actually, it, you think go a hundred, hundred years back. No, actually, yeah, go 160, yeah. 70 years back. Yeah, the frontier, the frontier meant factories, you know. Not only that, but the frontier, you know. Beyond that, beyond that, beyond the factories, though, because that was yeah. some of that was involuntary. Yeah. Some of that was just kids who got, you know. So beyond, beyond, yeah. beyond the factories, beyond the factories, Lewis and Clark could not happen in today's society. The push westward, the frontier mentality, which yeah. emboldened so many spirits and enriched and, 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 and enriched that idea of America being the a land of amber waves of grain. Yeah. The plains, yes, the new world, all this stuff would be impossible in today's society because today's society, people are a little bit too coddled and coddling increases risk adversity and risk adversity. You guys know psychology. You know what that does. <laughs> it, it, it limits the possibilities you have. But you, I mean, you... You, you take risk adversity and you take pampering and you, uh, you make them, you, 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 you put them to the third power and the fourth power and the fifth power to all the way to the hundredth power. Then you have, then you have today's society is what you have. You have a society in which everything is handed to you quickly, or if it's not quickly, you can try to make it quickly. I mean, even something as simple as a delivery. Oh, you want priority shipping or do you want overnight shipping? Oh, well, you pay a little bit more for overnight shipping. It might hurt in the long run, but you get, you get, you get, get it faster. You know, and, the, and people, a lot of people think quickness and getting something faster is a substitute for what the, the sort of, what should be the joy of waiting. The joy of waiting is a principle that has animated so many interactions throughout human history. The joy of waiting is why courtship and romance are, well, okay, I don't want to say today, but, but previously, were very powerful things. I think that romance and courtship, courtship particularly has died because of the tender and the grinder. There's no courting anymore. It's just you text someone, you send them a picture of your junk and you have sex with them, get rocks off and you go away. There's no courting. There's no love. I'm going to be real with you guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) There's no courting. There's no waiting. There's no anticipation. Right, right. But But that's risk. Waiting and courting and all that kind of stuff, it's risk. Yep. Because that person could hurt you. They could yep. say no. They, I mean, you, your pride could be destroyed. Whereas if you just go in there, you do your thing real quick. Hey, you can just go get out of there, not even know their name or even really see their face. Bye. On the next person. Yeah. <laughs> no investment, no attachment. It's, yeah. it's destroying the human spirit. Because yeah, the that. human spirit is predicated upon 
upon risking everything yeah. to have something. This is the story of Prometheus bequeathing fire upon the humans, humans mm-hmm. taking the fire, gaining knowledge, and making that in civilization, the civilization coming out of the ashes of war, all that kind of stuff. All of it is a story, fundamental story of risk animating the human experience. So not only does risk averseness. You're sounding a little roomy in there and, and a little pinesque. <laughs> well, uh, okay, uh, okay, you're, 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 you're funny. <laughs> uh, you're funny. But, 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 uh, but, uh, but um, well, there are certain concepts throughout history. I agree with that. I, that, that that's obvious, um, no. Anyway, but so, um, what was I gonna say? I lost my thought. I'm sorry, I'm talking about no, no, risk adversity. No, I, I lost risk. my, yeah. oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, a lot of the human story, it's like when you, when you get rid of risk averseness, you don't just limit your possibilities in this sort of utilitarian sense. I think in a sense, you limit the scope of your humanity, in my opinion. You limit the scope of, what do I mean by that? No, I would agree with I you. I do believe, I believe that everyone can, everyone, and this is why I somewhat agree with Aristotle, is chasing their best possible self. Now, whether they should base all of their actions off of that, no, I'm not sure about that. There's more than just us in the world. There are things that are external to us that matter very much. We have external obligations to other people, not to hurt, not to take their stuff. I mean, so I'm not sure it's all about us. But a lot of people, the human experience is about chasing the best possible being you can be in accordance with the natural principle of growth. Growth is embedded into our DNA by virtue of aging. Well, growth yes. is painful, which I think is going to this concept of we, yes. we need to be challenged. We need an unknown uh, to venture uh, off. And then you see again. If you're not challenged, then you can't rise to the occasion. There's right. no and this is, another, you know. this is another impact of risk averseness. If growth is the animating principle of human life and we are risk averse to experiencing the necessities of growth, we can't grow and we're limiting our human, human potential. Yeah, we're stagnating. Exactly. So I, I just, I, it's a shame to see so many manifestations of risk averseness in our society. It's a shame to see them so willingly adhered to by so many people unknowingly, I think. I don't think most people are realizing what this is doing to them. They're just living in this kind of environment. Yeah. But it starts with, it starts with rejecting all that kind of stuff. And willing to take chances. I mean, one of my favorite singers, you know, this is kind of a gay moment here. One of my favorite singers, Celine, Celine Dion. Oh, you know, wow. she has a song. She has. I'm I know. Right I, now. She's a big uh, fan of Celine Dion. Oh yeah. Um. You know, she. Uh, she said she has a song called "Taking Chances." You know, and and that's that's what we really. That's just a simple principle we can teach to anyone, yeah. regardless of their philosophical or political background. That's a simple principle. But unfortunately, there is a certain political persuasion which thinks that too many chances have been taken already and that's resulted in inequality and brutishness and pain. Exactly. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Warnings in safe spaces. Yeah. The university has now become a place where you have to protect people's feelings. Exactly. It was supposed to be a place where you had your ideas and your feelings disrupted and challenged. So you could have a course, so you could grow. Go on to Uh, that. I typically use like the, the weights analogy too, for this stuff, you know, like, to grow your muscles, you have to push them to the point where the fibers break and then they rebuild themselves. Growth is a painful yeah. process. Yes, like, absolutely. I don't think it can yeah. be any other way. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, but you know, this risk averseness, man, this the, the, this this fear of fear, as I like to say, this fear of fear is going to end up creating a lot of dilapidated humans. Well, look at actually, the, it already has. The last 16 months, you know? It already it already has created a lot of dilapidated humans, actually. 
It has. Why do you think? I'm, I'm, I'm touching some territory which might get me in trouble, but <laughs> I'm about it's to get dangerous in rhetoric, man. Go for uh, it. Uh, <laughs> if it's not, why you, do you? If I can always cut it, put it on Rumble. A, a, a lot of people wonder. Oh, we have so much material success and prosperity. Why do we have some of the highest rates of depression and suicide in, 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 in the history of human civilization? Well, I mean, the easy answer is, you know, resources don't give you happiness. Everyone knows that. They don't bring meaning. But, 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 but the deeper answer is people are using resources in a way that is impairing their humanity and making them not see the range of their possibilities available. So forget happiness. Happiness is just one entire outcome of all the other outcomes in life. Have and a, it's fleeting. Red Victor fleeting. No, I've not read Frank. I've not should, read Frank. You should read Man's Search for Meaning. Like I literally, but, uh, I recommend this book to like everyone who will listen but to me. I, I have read Social Nietzsche. Okay. And 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 but I know Social Nietzsche said volume of Gulag. And then oh, yeah, all right, I need a break from this. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 Gulag is very eye-opening. I also read uh, the address he did before the uh, he did before Harvard. He, a Harvard commencement address he did. Now, now, most people who are fans of fans of Nietzsche. Vis-a-vis Jordan P. P. Peterson. Yeah, yeah, most people who are fans of him, vis-a-vis Jordan P. Peterson, if they read that Harvard speech, they may be taken aback because most folks who tend to be fans of Solzhenitsyn, I'm not speaking for you, but most folks who tend to be, tend to be on the libertarian side of things. And Solzhenitsyn thinks that individualism and the sort of, you know, do it your own way, go your own way in society is destroying his culture. That's what he thinks. I mean, and this is a sentiment that many cultural religious conservatives in America believe. And hey, that, that's, that's a perspective. Culture is important, but I don't think that individualism is anathema to culture. Solzhenitsyn does think that. He is not an individualist at all. He is very much a communitarian. Um, he's from Russia, for goodness sakes. Even though he rejected communism, he yeah. still believed that a strong communal response against communism was the only way to get out of it, not an embracement of Russian individualism. So he hated it. Well, he didn't hate he was very critical of the West, and most folks don't know that about him. So I, 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 was I quote him. Yeah. I, I quote him. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Most most people aren't, unfortunately. So I, I quote I him. I have a friend who's a democratic socialist and really does not like socialists, and so he made sure to inform me of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I quote him very with much caution. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think, and, and I, and I think I, there's I, always been a struggle, though, between trying to balance this idea of the individual with community. Because oh, there is no balance. There's we no do balance. need community, though, is what I'm saying, like to an extent. Obviously, we need okay. a unit. We need friends. We, we, we have a sort of network, right? We, we have a tribe that we build around ourselves. And so despite the importance of the individual, which I do think should take precedence, the community is necessary. So yeah, yeah, that's not what Solzhenitsyn is saying. Though. Okay. That's really not what he's saying. He's he's saying the the individual as a unit is just really is being emphasized upon is not a good is not a good thing. So even taking precedence for him would be too much. And I can share some quotes with you later once yeah. you get off. But well, you, I've, I've you heard really these criticisms before, and I think I guess it comes back to it's like they view individualism as going back toward the ultimate selfishness, perhaps because you're you're going back to the self, right? And, well. Solzhenitsyn also views common cultural bonds as a means of of ensuring decency. Yeah. He think he th- he thought that pornography was was evil and all these things. I mean, I mean, all, all this all this stuff, which is not again not really foreign to the sentiments of a lot of cultural conservatives in America, but I think do run a thwart of 
of sound reasoning when one looks at these claims a little bit more seriously. And this is not to denigrate the man's legacy. Solzhenitsyn obviously went through a bad thing, and he has a lot of he has a lot of uh, he has a lot of experiences to teach us. Um, I'm just very careful about putting folks on pedestal. But back to this idea of the balance. There's no balance. I don't believe in this idea. I I, I, I used to believe in this idea of balance. So oh, if you just put it in moderation, I guess I meant more a struggle. But, you know, a struggle. Well, yeah, there's a struggle, and I think there's historically amongst. Well, yeah, 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 that, that, systems, of course. You know? Well, of course, there's a, there's a struggle, but there shouldn't be a struggle because I think that the truth is obvious. The truth is obvious. You don't have political system without the individual. You don't have anything in this world without individual wills bringing it forth. Does this mean that the individual is the most valuable thing in the world? No. And natural law theory says, Hugo Grotius, one of my favorite uh, 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 theorists, and he actually, he influenced John Locke, he influenced the American founders. He is one of the silent um, architects of, of the American Republic, Hugo Grotius. He says that the sociability of man is one of the most important parts of natural law theory. All that means is that, you know, man is a social animal, and these elements like the community and friends and family are very important parts for his enjoyable existence. But before he even mentions society, he first mentions that there are two principles in nature that are enduring, constant, and intractable, his words, self-defense and self-preservation. Now, he distinguishes the two, even though they seem very similar. He distinguishes the two and those of them very separately. Those are two principles that rest in the seat of the individual. So for that reason, he believes the individual must have rights and those rights must be respected and everyone must have an obligation to respect that right, those rights. That is the basis for my kind of individualism. This does not mean that I don't need a family or friends. Yeah, we have family or friends. I'm not, not, I think those things are contractual entirely. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that blood is this intractable bond that binds me. As a, no, no, no I forget that. No, no, it, no. It, it, if if someone wants to be in my life, they got to act a certain way. They got to be respectful. Sure. Got to be kind. Got to be positive. Blood who treats you like absolute garbage, and you probably now you know stay. The cultural preservationists, though, the cultural preservationists, like you know Ram Hazani and people like him, they're like, no, 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 no. Blood is more than just a contract. It is this mystical thing that you have to stay in. You have to be you have to be bound to if you want to have a fulfilling life. Aristotle even says this kinda. He says the polis is essential for an individual to be virtuous and fulfilled. A community, a political system is essential for you to be virtuous and fulfilled. So yeah, there's an intellectual struggle, but unfortunately it's a struggle that is predicated upon a falsehood when the truth is very evident from everyday practical life. So I always say, that it's not balance, it's subordination. You subordinate in a hierarchy, the sociability of man beneath my need to preserve myself. Now, the problem with this is self-preservation, I think is linked to other people. Self-interest, therefore, from that principle is also linked to other people. None of us are atomistic things floating on in space. So maybe even the subordination business is a little bit um, absurd because ingrained in natural relationships is already this emphasis on the individual surviving and thriving. So social relationships are actually examples, extensions of the value of my individualism. So no, there's not really, there's a struggle because there have been minds throughout history have wanted to denigrate and destroy and eviscerate the individual and treat them as, as, as evil or treat them as insignificant in the broader picture without realizing, watch this, that the individual actually is.
the stem of the broader picture. Without the individual, that picture is non-existent. So very good point. You know, that's that's just that's how I approach these things. You know, my my favorite, um, one of the most, I think he's very not very well known, but he's one of my favorite natural law theorists, John Barbara Barbarak. He says that protecting rights, John Barbarak, um, protecting rights is not a matter of balance because rights must be preserved. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, rights must be preserved to ensure that other things, bad things don't happen. It's not a matter of balance. It's a matter of choosing one over the other. So I think that's the mentality we should approach when it comes to this mythical struggle between the individual and the, and the community. This doesn't really exist, in my opinion. Well, okay, it, the idea exists, but in reality, I don't. I think that it's 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 a misconception. I guess I, I guess what I meant was that it was at the. I know what you meant. I know what you meant. There's the a historical debate of, behind of it of the of the struggle and debate between the various political systems. It's yeah, like, I know. Like but there are people who think capitalism, for example, as the more individualist system, right? And then many view communism as the collectivist system. And but yeah, but there are ethicists that actually. There. There are ethicists that actually believe that there is a legitimate struggle between the individual and the community that needs to be reconciled. This is a, a, a comment, you know, this is a point that many ethicists actually seriously consider. And I think that they're ridiculous. In my personal opinion, I look, I'm, what, who am I? I'm 21. You know, I don't have any fancy degrees behind me yet. Who am I to say these ethicists who have been trained at some of the best universities in the world, who have been considering these issues for their entire life in their, in their academic dens, who am I to say that they're wrong? I think they're they're laboring under a false system. My personal opinion. No, I think that's uh, very intellectually <laughs> humble of you, yeah, though, too. To, you know, it's, and and I also think that it comes back to like it's not necessarily a struggle between the individual and the community, but like there definitely is an interaction there, and you do have to have you know as the basis of a community, you have a group of individuals who voluntarily mm-hmm. associate, and if that voluntary association is compelled it certainly yeah. it, it definitely damages the individuals and then uh, eventually it damages mm-hmm. the community through loss of that individual or damage that individual for them to have an inability to reach their full potential yeah and yeah and, and if there's a compulsion to associate you're no longer associating with with, with benevolent intention you're associating to to meet the needs of the comp- the compeller, the people, the person who is compelling you, the person who's using force against you. And, and, and that's an entirely different set of ethical problems in and of itself, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, We're seeing so, that so, manifest too with the, the sort of social media yeah. censorship and different, uh, mm, you know, mm. specific about different compulsions that are being, uh, you know, certain shots and things that we can't talk about on YouTube. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> there definitely does seem to be like this mm-hmm. sort of desire to compel well, people yeah, to behave yeah. in a certain way. Well, uh, okay, I'll say this much. There are dominant epistemic structures in Western society which push, which take for granted the inviability of certain ideas and certain concepts. And whenever anyone pushes back against that as presumed inviability, they are themselves considered the crazy one. Now, this is not new. Socrates happened to Socrates, happened to Pete yes. Seeger, happened to Jesus Christ, happened happens to every person who it's raises their voice. as old anyway. as humanity. Right, exactly. So there's nothing, nothing new, but the form is, I think the form is new. Instead of it happening by mobs or whatever, it's happening through dignified, legitimized organs that many, organs of society that many people consider 
to be fundamentally good, not to be oppressive, not to be just to be fundamentally good. Most folks need to consider in the context that I'm analyzing it as, and that is as a as a power structure, you know, as as an epistemic power structure. So, I I, I think there's a there's a, a big blind spot. Now, I'll say this much: I'm not personally, and you know, I'm I'm not into conspiracy theories. I'm not into all kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, I don't. I'm not. I'm. I'm not into all that. No, I don't. I don't. I don't mess with that kind of stuff, man. I. I, I don't. I think it's important to be skeptical and to question everything. A lot of conspiracy theorists go beyond that. Yeah. Skepticism does not necessarily no, necessitate. I agree with forming you, a position. Uh, so, so skepticism does not necessarily necessitate forming a position. It is actually, I think, the absence of a position and the presence of a critical mindset. Many conspiracy theorists, theorist, they form positions and, and ideas out of gaping holes that they can't explain. It's like the God of the gap fallacy. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it, therefore God it is. This is. This is the dominant natural idea of humanity for a very long time. Well, I can't explain the rain, therefore Zeus did it. Well, if we actually explain yeah. the rain, Zeus goes away. Well, so we can actually explain... As someone who's delved into the conspiracy world for a long time, I've delved into um, it. It's nonsense. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I can, I can definitely attest that it attracts a lot of unstable people. That's very much true. But I think you know we're conspiracy theorists. I hate that term too. More in the sense of where you know when we look at history and we look at power and we look at people who want to obtain power or keep power. In many ways, history is a, a series of conspiracies. It, it is a series of people oh, doing plans in private, behind closed doors, to get power and to keep it, in a sense. Ooh, so, I don't uh, I mean, the, the, the whole conspiracy theory term is something that I think just kind of is used yeah. too often to dismiss people who are right. questioning certain things. Not trying right. to fill the hole or the gap, but saying like, hey, there's something happening here. There's something that we should be analyzing, right? And I think that's my problem with the label. But I will admit, you know, the the realm of conspiracies attracts a lot of unstable people, a lot of people who are mentally ill, a lot of people who are seeking meaning or are seeking some kind of explanation for the strangeness of the world, you know? Okay. Yeah. The people don't concern me. The practice does. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, 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 strictly in principle, the practice does. I don't care. The people, you know, they're just being, they're just vessels for ideas. They don't concern me. The practice does. And, and, and the practice, I think, oftentimes leads to a realm of, of, of trying to ascertain knowledge that is not always rigorous. You know, I think that a lot of it relies on assumptions and deductions, and those can be okay. I always say intuition should be the beginning of the knowledge process. It should not be infused throughout it. It should not even be, you know, a, a hint of it shouldn't even be found in the conclusion. By the time you go from intuition to conclusion, you should already have a bunch of other things that escape individual intuition built in rock solid. I think that a lot of conspiracies kind of flip the uh, conspiracy they're assuming kind of flip the idea. They put a lot of intuition into it, put a few like material ideas and instances into it as well, and then rationalize how those things could possibly mean something in the grander scheme of things and then reach a conclusion with that. I don't think it's epistemically rigorous or humble. That's just my personal opinion. Now, is this to say that every instance, there's a difference between being a conspiracy theorist and being someone who questions and challenges authority and narrative accounts. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of people who question and challenge the idea that Epstein killed himself. Yep. 
We are among them. I and, and I, I, I and I think that is a reasonable assertion, primarily because of the conditions that surrounded yeah. his capture, who he knew. Mm-hmm. You know, that's probably a reasonable assertion. Now, I think the 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 the, the part where I wouldn't do, I wouldn't go into saying, "Oh, the CIA whacked him." Or whatever, I wouldn't say all that because I don't know. Like, I don't know. That's that, that, that's gap filling. That is gap filling, yeah. and that requires well, a lot of rationalization. We don't know really. But 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 there are folks. There are folks who would put who who fill in the holes. Yeah, and do it all the time. And that's why it's a theory. So I just, I don't know, man. I'm just I'm a very cautious person. I I I, I try to stay. Um, I try to stay on solid ground. You know, I challenge the authority and the the power structure all the time. I actually got caught. Uh, I got caught a, a tool for saying this actually because I said, you know, I stay on solid ground. I'm like, oh, you don't want to go venture beyond, do you? You want to, want to, want to be accepted by the establishment, don't you? I'm like, well, they already hate me. I'm not looking for their favor. I mean, the establishment of my university dislikes me. Well, at least the establishment of the particular, a particular kind of academic in my university, you know, dislikes me. A particular set of them dislike me. The students, most of them who are leftists, especially have no use for me. Even folks who are not leftists still have no use for me. I mean, a lot of people are not in my favor, but a lot of people are, you know? So, I mean, I, I don't, I already have the establishment, right? Against me. Then I have these other, these, these tech companies who, whatever, I won't get into that. But I mean, I don't view myself as man against the world, fighting, fighting, fighting. I view myself as a inquisitor who was looking at things, who was trying to use reason and empiricism to draw forth reasonable conclusions and hopefully get to the grand truth of things. I don't want to get bogged down in Pritchett's death or JFK's death or 9-11 or whatever. I don't want to get bogged down to all that because in my opinion, that distracts me from my pursuit of overall objective truth. For some folks, that is their pursuit of truth. More power to you. More power to them. God bless them. I'll be praying for them. I can't do it, man. I got. I only got so much energy. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. The problem in the area of conspiracy theory research is that certain things are unknowable. And mm. you can draw conclusions that are based on the facts, but... At a certain point, you have to, if you if you want to explain the entire thing, like let's just take 9-11, for example, uh, a lot of people will draw conclusions about who did what and how the buildings were brought down. And I think a lot of that is sort of getting lost in, in the weeds. And what more importantly, I think it's more important to sort of see untruth, because in my opinion, being ignorant is better than being misled. And so if you can dispense with a lie or if you can identify a narrative that you can sort of objectively establish is untrue, then you're in, even if you don't know the whole story, if you don't know, you know, what actually happened, you're still in a better position because you can say, look, we don't know, whereas these people are trying to push what is, you know, clearly an untruth. So that's kind of like what I find is interesting about conspiracy theory. And there's definitely a lot of people that sort of take it to the nth extent. Yeah. And I'm not even, like, I, I, I will, I, I, I theorize conspiratorially that certain elements or there, there is a vested interest in obscuring the conversation by promoting those sort of views. And like, you see that in the flat earthers and the QAnons, 
you know, of the internet, which I, I personally believe are, are psychological operations by some nefarious agency. But that's a conclusion that I've drawn based on, you know, studying the history of this sort of thing. And it's not something I can objectively prove. But when you sort of delve into the history and you look at the facts, you can connect the dots and say, hmm, yes, that makes sense to a certain extent, or it's a rational. Well, there's a pattern. You, you can identify a pattern, I think. That's right. You, you can see a pattern and you can draw certain conclusions, but you can't sort of necessarily say this is objectively true yeah. because you, it's, it's unknowable at a certain no, point. No, but I, I do agree with Krishna. A lot of conspiracy theorists jump the gun. That's the problem is they jump the gun. They, they're not just playing with the ideas and saying, hey, I've identified a lie. That doesn't mean I know what the actual truth is. I just know that's not it. Um, most of them will say that's a lie. This is the truth. And they immediately jump to it yeah so but I, yeah i think mm-hmm. that's a good point i get what you mean mm. well look you know uh, uh, you know uh, uh, th- this doesn't distract from the fact that gentlemen seem to be motivated by the desire to have critical discourse a lot of folks who reject conspiracy theories are labeled as people who want to have critical discourse within the realms of, of acceptability. I'm getting, I, I'm called that all the time. And I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, not, I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't worry about that, that kind of stuff because I don't have time for it. Again, I only have so much energy, but I think that a message is more effective, the more grounded it is. That's all I'll say about that. Totally. No, um, I would agree with you hundred um, percent. And, 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 but grounding your message should never be a means of sacrifice and quality or integrity, which is why I can never be a conspiracy theorist. Cause I don't, I just don't believe this stuff. <laughs> I don't believe it at all. I just can't. I, if I would, I, I could become very popular, perhaps demonetize and, and deplatform, but very popular in a certain sense by promoting conspiracy theories. Fuentes did it all the time. Nick Fuentes. I, I mean, it's easy. It's easy. It, it sells. There's a market for it. I didn't even know who Nick Valley this was until yeah, recently. I just found out about him <laughs> recently too. Well, no, well, he had a market. Yeah. Yeah. He had a market. He had a market, and he, he he had a market. So I mean, I mean, it sells, but I can't do it personally. What I don't think Sorry. sells though is sort of rationally approaching conspiracy theory. What seems to be more popular. And I don't even, I, I, the problem I have with the term too is really like, what are we talking about? It's, it's, uh, you're theorizing about you know, a group of people who are uh, you know, colluding behind the scenes in order to do something wrong or illegal. That's basically how, you, like how I understand the yeah. word. Well, that's why I said earlier, history is in a sense a series of conspiracies in that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and today, and, and even when you understand, like when you look at the history of the, the phrase conspiracy theory, it was you know, basically pushed by the CIA in the late 60s in order to discredit anybody talking about the assassination of JFK. Yeah. And or, that's not a conspiracy well, theory. That is like- Well, 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 okay. Be careful yeah. there, because- Okay. It's true. I-, I I, th- I think associating the use of a term with an agency that may not necessarily be valued or liked as a means of discrediting the term is not the best thing to do. I think the term conspiracy theory is still a valid way of classifying certain things so long as the classification is not the invalidation uh, and, and look, there are many people who say this is a conspiracy theory, and they will explain why it makes no sense. Plenty of folks. Now, 
a lot of conspiracy theorists don't like those books and they think that they're just, you know, the Patman for whatever, whatever world, whatever is going on. I don't, I don't, I don't know what people believe these days. But uh, when I was 12, 13, it was, it was the, the Illuminati and the 2012 and the, and the, and the new world order. When, and now it seems to be, uh, actually, no, it still is all that kind of stuff, but it's kind of morphed, right? Trump is the hero who, beat them back right or whatever the i don't know then the mythos of conspiracy theories just confused the hell out of me man i don't know i had not been following it, it. but anyway funny when you get uh, it. Uh, and, and for david ike it was the reptilians and all that kind oh, of crazy yeah. shit He's uh, uh, yeah yeah jesus christ anyway look okay i don't know man. i'm not i don't, don't want to offend you guys i don't know i don't know i just i stay away i stay away from that stuff yeah. i stay away from it I, just I think I think my only problem, I guess, with the term, and I'm not saying it, it, it can't be used as a term to identify certain types of people who are falling for what you're saying, these sort of jumping the gun ideas. I see it used far too often to dismiss even having a discourse about certain ideas by people. You know? And that's wrong. In, instead that's of wrong. engaging with the idea and saying like, well, here's why I think you're incorrect for this and this and that reason. It's just an automatic, that's a conspiracy theory. And there yeah, is- Yeah, that, that, that's wrong, by the way, that's wrong. And the it's, principle it's, it's wrong. often by people who haven't even actually studied the things that they're dismissing. For example, I am really fascinated by the UFO subject. It's something that has interested me for a very long time, since high school. I read multiple books about it. You know, I had a friend in college who would just always debate me on this issue and dismiss it, dismiss it. There's nothing to it. There's no evidence. And I'd be like, why don't you actually just read the material, read the material by the people who actually study it seriously. And then we can talk about it and have a debate. Won't even read the material. And this is what frustrates me so much about people who just dismiss those sorts of things or hold these like form opinions about them. They haven't actually studied them. They haven't studied any of the people who's researched them. Like I would respect those sorts of folks more if they respond and said hey well you know i read jacques ballet and this is what i thought about him i read jay allen Hynek, and this is what i thought about him i read charles fort and this is what i thought right instead it's just no those guys study aliens it, they're crazy despite the fact that jacques ballet is a, a freaking you know physicist and stuff like it doesn't matter they they won't engage with the material so my mm-hmm. issue with with the term is the way it's used often to just not have a discourse not even talk about the ideas it no, makes it too easy to, it makes it too easy to not engage you know and i get it i get it i i don't i don't agree with using it as an invalidating technique yeah. a validation technique rather but i do call a spade a spade yeah <laughs> you oh, know I, 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 I mean the internet is full of whack I, I i i call a spade a spade you know i've you know, and also I don't have, I, I, personally for me, now I don't, I don't try to dismiss people outright, but I don't have the energy to read everything. Uh, people always recommend books. I have about 60 books that I'm trying to read by myself. I have a thousand. I, I, I mean, so, so I mean, so I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to get through some of my natural author stuff. So, sure. I mean, there are a lot of things I got to read. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's why, you know, it's why I always, I come to conversations everything that I have in my mind, I try not to draw too much from other people. Like I try not, I try not to be, you know, folks are like, you know, you're the next Ben Shapiro, whatever the heck people say. And I, I that's just not, I don't even, I don't even listen to him. I don't even listen to him. I don't even listen to him in all honesty. Exactly, exactly. But there are some folks who are not confident enough in their own limitations that they come to the battle in someone else's armor. This hmm. is the quandary that David faced when he, before he fought Goliath, they were trying to give him 
armor. And he said, I cannot fight in another man's armor. Hmm. That is one of the most profound things to come from out of any spiritual tradition. And there are plenty of profound things come out of the Eastern ones too, by the way. There are plenty of profound things. Shen to us in that entire idea of, you know, everything in the earth having an essence, having a sort of consciousness behind it. Oh, yeah. I love Taoism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All that stuff is very fascinating. But not fighting in another man's armor is something so applicable to practical life that it's not even funny. Too many people try to fight in someone else's armor, some, an armor that is not weighted for them, that is not measured for them, that is not meant for them. And they end up getting taken down by the armor and, and their opponent has no work to do. So for example, there are a lot of folks. So folks I just thought about I'm, the fear I'm, not, I'm not trying to, you know, there are a lot of folks who really, really, um, tinkle real quick well, well there there are a lot of folks who really really like um you know um jordan peterson yeah they they they, they, they try to fight in his armor i understand exactly what you mean yeah and i i hate that yeah because you like, know jordan yourself like reference peterson exactly ideas, but you don't exactly. have to be like an apologist you don't have to exactly be, um, exactly you know, you, exactly. to, you shouldn't have to defend Peterson's ideas for him. You know, Peterson has it. Like, exactly. Discuss them. But, um, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, my armor is small and has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of flaws in it, a lot of dents in it, but it's still my armor and I love my armor. And I've, 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 I've taken this armor around with me in a lot of different battles and it's, it's braved almost every single one of them. It suffered a few blows and a few of them, but it's still, Likewise. still kicking. It's still going, yeah. you know? And, and so that's the principle that I use. Now, look, uh, this is a, a very, a very, again, radically individualistic principle. Um, there are a lot of folks who this idea is anathema to them. You know, they, 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 think, they think that not only should you fight in someone else's armor, you need their armor to, to be any kind of worthwhile. I mean, this is the idea of imitation. Um, you know, in Machiavelli and the Prince talks a lot about imitation, imitating the great leader's choice so you can self, yourself can, have, can approach greatness, right? We'll never be as great as Alexander the Great Machiavelli says, but we can approach it or the, the prince can approach it if he disseminates it enough. Well, no, no, because no, Alexander the Great was formulated by a particular set of circumstances that were primarily unique to him. Unique most to him. twenty most twenty year olds are not going around conquering most of the world. <laughs> <laughs> most twenty year olds can't even yeah. conquer can't even can't even conquer you know the, the whatever the Candy Crush game is whatever yeah. that shit is. Excuse so my language. People like yeah, Alexander the Great are certainly the exception. Yeah, the exactly, people. exactly. And, and this sort of exalting and deifying these historical figures and not recognizing that they they existed in a certain place and time for a certain purpose sure. due to certain conditions yeah. is a misattribution. I, I view Peterson a, like that sort of, you know, he is what, what he a product of this time. He, in a sense, he's yeah, exactly. responding to a crisis that he sees, you know? Exactly. You, you couldn't have Peterson in 1920. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you, couldn't have, you couldn't have him in 1920. You couldn't, you couldn't yeah, have Bertrand yeah, Russell. I guess you know, Burton Russell. Just, just back to the point of, of the conspiracy stuff. You know, too many people form an opinion about something they haven't studied, and that's that's my only criticism there with, with people who tend to throw that term around. They yeah. throw they I, I noticed they throw it around about subjects that I know they have not actually mm -hmm. studied. So, I mean, me personally, I really try to avoid that. I try to avoid uh, having an opinion on something that I know I'm not that familiar with 
right just just to save myself the trouble you know right called out later for yeah me too i mean that's what i did in this conversation i mean sure, it's like yeah, yeah, psychopathy whatever i don't know i don't know i think it's the best thing we can do is to when we when we don't know something to just admit it to just say we don't yeah. know to not to not say no, oh well, that's my opinion or that's my opinion just say you know i don't know enough about that to uh, inform yeah. anything on it so i got, I got nothing to lose <laughs> i got nothing to, I, I only got something to gain by knowing more about something think about it time is it how long that's, well, that's about an hour and a half yeah i guess i guess we can wrap it up yeah. is there anything else you want to add christian uh, well, you, you guys um, this has been a blessing thank, oh, thank you for you having so me much. on really i mean it. no i don't mind i i, I Again, whenever anyone wants to come for, to me for my thoughts, you know, I'm humbled immensely and I'm shocked a little bit, but humbled <laughs> still. And I'm, I'm grateful at the same time. Definitely. And we'd love to do this again. And we'd sure. love to come yeah. back. No, I mean, we, we really like what you do. You know, we, we like the ideas that you're talking about. And we don't always have to agree on things, obviously. Right. But I think you're, you're contributing a lot to the discourse right now. And I hope to see you uh, rise in, in the discourse. I want to see you see me rise. I want to see your voice get more attention. I want to see voices like yours, especially regarding all the CRT stuff and all of that. More voices oh, yeah. like yours, like gothics, you know, put, put on the forefront and, and talk about because you're, you're too often brushed under the rug, you know, and especially in, in the current in the current political discourse. But Dude, I think you're brilliant. You're awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us. Where can uh, people find you? All right. So Christian Watson, the, the Christian Watson channel on YouTube. They can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I don't do Instagram very much. I'm going to start. I'm going to change that eventually, but I don't do it very much. It's, you can find all that at... It's a shit <laughs> it's, uh, Yeah. That's why, that's why I've kind of not done it. But, but, but they can find all those Twitter, Instagram, Facebook on at official c watson so christian watson youtube channel and at official c watson for everything else great that's awesome thank you so much christian awesome everybody else thanks for watching this is dangerous rhetoric i'm dan i'm brantley yeah. take care guys see ya. bye, -bye.